With a shovel or a pick. In a mine, in a mine, in a mine. This is a sign uh, of hope and confidence in the future of the coal industry. Coal is good for humanity. Coal is good for prosperity. Coal is an essential part of our economic future here in Australia and right around the world. Despite the Prime Minister's rosy optimism, Coal prices are down and carbon emissions are up. Some people think we can fix both these problems with carbon capture and storage. Will this technology prove to be the saviour of coal-fired power, or is it a hopeless last effort to extend the life of a dying industry? You're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories on 3CR 855 AM and broadcasting over the Community Radio Network. I'm Corey Green. The former Labor government invested heavily in carbon capture and storage, or CCS, research, promotion and pilot projects. In 2009, the Labor government started the Carbon Capture and Storage Flagships Program, pledging $2 billion over nine years. From that, Australia has three large-scale carbon capture and storage projects underway. The most advanced is the Gorgon Project. The former Labor government invested $60 million into this project, which is expected to commence in 2016. There's also the CarbonNet project in Victoria, which received $70 million from the federal government and $30 million from the state of Victoria. There's the Southwest CO2 Geosequestration Hub in Western Australia, which is a government industry partnership led by the Western Australian Department of Mines and Petroleum. It has already received $52 million of federal money. $100 million of the carbon capture and storage flagships money went to research through the Education Infrastructure Fund. Also in 2009, the Labor government started the Global CCS Institute, whose main mission seems to be to promote CCS in Australia and overseas. In comparison to this, the current Liberal government seems to be moving away from investment in CCS. The government's $2.55 billion Emissions Reduction Fund doesn't cover this technology, although a statement from the Department of Environment seemed to suggest that they are open to it in the future. The Carbon Capture and Storage Flagships Program continues but has been reduced to about a tenth of its budget, $191.7 million over seven years. It continues to fund the same projects, research and promotion that the Labor government set up. Whether the funding reduction is because the government doesn't believe in this technology or whether it's because it thinks that climate change is crap is up for you to ponder. The federal Liberal government continues to invest in coal and continues to invest in other emissions reduction methods that have proven to be more effective. Industry and state governments are still funding this research. We have three guests on our show today to discuss carbon capture and storage. Later on, we'll be talking to Gerard Drew from Beyond Zero Emissions and Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. First up, we have Ralph Hayes, Professor of Geological Carbon Dioxide Storage at the Peter Cook Centre for CCS Research, University of Melbourne. Welcome to Earth Matters. Can you please introduce yourself? 
My name is Ralph Hayes. I'm a professor here at the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and I'm also affiliated with the Peter Cook Center for Carbon Capture and Storage Research at the University of Melbourne. Um, all of my research is dedicated to answering questions related to CO2 storage, and I've been doing that for a number of years, um, and it's, it's, um, that's what I'm doing. And so can you briefly explain how carbon capture and storage works? Yeah, so most of the CO2 um, carbon dioxide emissions um, come from industrial sources. And so we separate the CO2 from those industrial sources, and that can be a coal-fired plant or um, oil and gas production where partly CO2 is produced as well. Um, it could be an aluminium or cement uh, factory um, producing products where also CO2 as a byproduct is generated. And so we separate the CO2 from other industrial gases and we then um, compress it and we transport it to a site where it is safe to store it in the subsurface um, over a very long time. Okay, and um, can you please explain which state the carbon dioxide is stored in? Yeah, so we, as I said before, we uh, compress the CO2 before it, um, it is um, pushed into the deep subsurface. And um, when we compress the CO2 enough, it becomes uh, as uh, what we call a supercritical phase. Now, that behaves like a liquid, similar to a water phase, has about half the density of water, and um, the carbon in that uh, supercritical phase is very dense. So that makes it ideal to then store it uh, in the deep subsurface because we can uh, inject it as a, as a fluid into a reservoir, and we can store large amounts within a relatively small area. And how long do you have to store the carbon dioxide underground for it to mitigate the effects of climate change? Well, that's really more of a question for the climate scientists and the ecologists and whoever is concerned about the impacts of uh, climate change. Um, as a researcher working on carbon capture and storage, my main aim really is to make sure that uh, we can separate the CO2 efficiently and then store it uh, safely in the deep subsurface. And the, really the overarching aim is to reduce our net emissions of CO2 to the atmosphere. And of course, thereby we then mitigate um, climate change impacts. But um, unfortunately, I'm not the right person to say at what point we can actually start mitiga mitigating the effects of climate change. So it's not part of your job to, um, to think about how long you're keeping it in the ground? Okay, well... Um, as a, no, we, we always um, make sure that it's, it's kept there um, for basically eternity, for as long as, as we can think of. Uh, the regulator um, overseeing CCS uh, technology um, actually requires to make sure that the CO2 stays in the subsurface for more than a thousand years. Okay, cool. Welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, I'm Gerard Drew from Beyond Zero Emissions. And today we're talking about um, carbon capture and storage technology. I guess my first question is, what percentage of the energy that you get out of burning the coal in a coal-fired power station do you have to put back into the carbon sequestration process? The carbon capture and storage requires usually around about 20% of the electricity that the power station produces to run the capture and compression systems involved in capture and storage. What percentage of energy is lost 
from burning coal in a coal-fired power station? Yeah, well, it kind of varies depending on the type of uh, coal and the type of coal power station. So in Australia, because we've got some of the oldest uh, power stations and power station technology in the world, we've got some of the least efficient power stations in the world, including the developed world. So in Australia, our power stations are around about 25% efficient in converting the energy you know, the, the raw energy in coal into electricity. So for every 100 joules of energy in the coal, only about 25 joules of electricity are produced. So if you retrofitted this technology with carbon capture and storage, you wouldn't really be getting a lot of energy out there? Well, that would knock another uh, 20% off that 25 joules. So... So instead of being 25% efficient, the power stations would drop down to being somewhere around 20% efficient. So the efficiency would go down by adding CCS to to the power station. Is your research aimed at retrofitting old power stations or building new ones? Um, Both, I suppose. So um, my colleagues from chemical engineering and process engineering who are uh, um, dealing with um, carbon capture more than the storage um, of carbon capture and storage research, they uh, develop technologies for both um, old and new uh, coal-fired plants. What percentage of the energy that you get out of burning coal do you Mm. need to put back into the sequestration process? That really depends on specific circumstances of the application. Um, And again, it's a question more for the chemical engineers and process engineers. Um, if there's no heat integration of the capture pro- process, um, the energy demand um, could be up to 30% of how much uh, energy is actually gained from bo- um, burning the coal. But um, more advanced technologies will allow to reduce the energy demand down to about 12% or even less. Um, so again, we need more research to um, reduce the energy demand and thereby the costs um, for that, uh, for the carbon capture process. Does it require ongoing energy inputs to keep it underground? No. Once the injection has uh, finished, we no longer need any um, energy to keep it in the ground. It stays there as it is. So is it not monitored or anything? Yes, we do monitor it, um, and there are many ways of monitoring um, the CO2 in the subsurface. For example, we have monitoring wells, measuring the pressure changes um, over time. We can run uh, geophysical um, programs to see where the CO2 is spreading in the, in the subsurface laterally. Um, and we can take water samples to make sure that none of the CO2 gets into our groundwater. All these are um, monitoring uh, ways for making sure that the CO2 is not migrating to areas outside of um, the storage area. and um, But those efforts don't really require much of energy um, that's really negligible. The main energy really for CCS goes into the capture process um, and then into the strength, transportation and really the injection a little bit. But the main energy for CCS goes into the capture process. But if you're aiming to keep it underground for eternity, wouldn't you also have to monitor it for eternity? 
Yes, um, that's right. And that's what the proponent, the industrial proponent, has to uh, demonstrate to the regulator that there is a monitoring program um, planned and it satisfies basically the requirements of the regulator. And um, when it leaks and you have to fix that, um, surely that's another energy input? Um, the So with the leakage, first of all, we have monitoring tools to um, have early warning signs of any leakage. For example, if uh, a leakage occurs, the pressure in the buff-lying reservoir or geological unit uh, changes, and we can then detect that leakage. Um, and, and then as a, as a remediation uh, technique, um, we are currently working on ways to uh, remediate a leakage. Um, that's part of my own research here at the moment to form uh, to develop technologies to form subsurface barriers in case an unexpected leakage is occurring. But again, um, these efforts don't require much energy input. It's more know-how, how to do it. But over the course of eternity, could you reach a point where you put more energy into the storage process and you get out of burning the coal? No. Um, so as part of the um, decision-making process, whether or not a project, a CCS project, goes ahead, um, there is a business case in place, and that also assesses um, the energy balance. How much energy do we put in for the carbon capture and storage technology for a particular project, and how much do we actually get out of it? And so if the, the balance is negative, if we consume more energy than we put in, the business case um, would not be uh, acceptable, and um, that can be excluded by any means. I'm Corey Green, and you're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. We're talking to Professor Ralph Hayes from the University of Melbourne about his research into carbon capture and storage. So when the carbon dioxide is in this um, supercritical state, the thing you are talking about before where it's sort mm-hmm. of liquid and sort of a gas, um, small changes of pressure and temperature can lead to large changes in density and so how it dissolves. How does that affect the storage process? Um, we generally um, inject the CO2 into depths um, where the supercritical, uh, the, the, the CO2 is in a supercritical phase. So it's basically then compressed enough to behave like a liquid and has a much higher density than a gas, for example. And so that depth threshold is around 800 meter depth. It depends a little bit on the on the temperature. Um, at depth, but about 800 meters is a critical threshold. And so once the injection occurs below that depth, and um, that's where the CO2 then is permanently stored, um, we'll make sure that um, it it has the right physical properties in terms of density and solubility, um, that it it behaves as we have predicted. So how do you keep the um, temperature and the pressure constant? So the pressure is really given by what we call the geothermal gradient. Basically, the deeper we go, the warmer it gets. Um, this is approximately um, 30 degrees per kilometer. It really depends on where you are. But as a, as a rough number, you can use 30 um, degrees per kilometer. And um, we know the, the pressure um, from the depth, obviously. And so those properties don't change. What will change is that we will have a slight pressure buildup during the injection phase when we inject the CO2 just because we push basically a mass of CO2 into an, uh, an existing reservoir. And that's where we have 
a slight pressure buildup. And that needs to be managed and monitored very carefully. In the event, I don't know, say of an earthquake or something, mm-hmm. if there was a leak, how would you fix that? Yeah, that comes back to these remediation technologies, which, um, which we currently develop. Um, there are a few ways to do it, um, and um, that's probably not at a stage where we can fully implement it, but that's where the research really helps out um, for, for the future. One way to um, basically remediate a CO2 leakage pathway at the moment is um, to inject um, a second well where we then inject, oh, sorry, to drill a second well and inject water so that the pressure gradient is reversed and um, we then push the CO2 away from the leakage site. But that's, of course, just a temporal um, uh, activity. Um, we are now aiming for developing permanent barriers to, uh, to make sure that a leakage pathway is permanently uh, clogged up um, if it does occur. Are you aiming to um, capture a lot of the carbon dioxide in mineral trapping? Uh, yes, as much as possible because it's a very desirable um, trapping mechanism because then the CO2 um, is permanently trapped um, in a mineral, uh, basically fixed in a, in a mineral and can no longer migrate. Um, and it really depends on the, the mineral composition of the reservoir, how, the, how long that will take and what the, the mineral trapping capacity is. So um, it really depends on where the storage site is. Um, some rocks are more uh, leaning, uh, have a higher reactivity towards the CO2 and uh, the precipitation of um, carbon-containing minerals, um, and others uh, less. But yeah, that's uh, it, it, it's a desirable trapping mechanism. But of course, if other trapping mechanisms are efficient, such as tra- structural trapping and existing geological structures then um, we are confident that um, the CO2 is permanently trapped in that structure as well. And how soon do you predict the um, carbon capture and storage technology will be commercially available? Well, there are uh, several places in the world where um, industrial-scale carbon capture and storage technology is occurring already. Um, There's one site, important site, up in Norway um, and in other parts of the world. Here in Australia, we believe that next year, in 2016, we'll have the first um, industrial-scale carbon capture and storage uh, technology in operation, and that is the um, CCS technology developed by Chevron and its uh, consortium partners um, up in northern um, Western Australia, where um, they produce hydrocarbons, and as part of that, um, a lot of CO2 is co-produced. They will separate the CO2 from the produced hydrocarbons and then re-inject it back into the subsurface um, as, a, as, a CO2, as, a, as a climate mitigation um, uh, technology, really. Is that going to be um, a commercial, like, is that going to be a commercially profitable um, business or is it going to be more government-funded? Um, so neither nor. This is, as far as I know, fully um, funded by the industry proponents. This is incorrect. The government has already invested $60 million into the Gorgon gas project. And um, it is not profitable because, as you know, we currently don't have a price on CO2. Um, But nevertheless, the um, industry consortium decided that it has merits um, and therefore they decided um, in favour of uh, the CCS technology there. 
So your industry has actually been negatively affected by the re removal of the carbon price. Is that what you're saying? So to, to start out with, I don't have an, an industry. Um, oh, I'm not funded by any industry. I'm a, I'm a researcher. This is incorrect. Professor Ralph Hayes works for the Peter Cook Centre for CCS Research at the University of Melbourne. The Peter Cook Centre lists its partners as Rio Tinto, the Victorian Government Department of State Development, Business and Innovation, and the Cooperative Research Centre for Greenhouse Gas Technologies. A list of the Cooperative Research Centre for Greenhouse Gas Technologies core industry and government participants includes BHP Billiton, BP, Chevron, Rio Tinto, Shell and Glencore Extrata. And um, that is really, the, the carbon price has many um, implications and um, that's really for others to decide on whether it has implications for ind certain industry sectors uh, or not. Thanks for answering all my questions. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Welcome to Earth Matters. Can you please introduce yourself? Yep, my name's Cam Walker. I'm the campaign's coordinator with Friends of the Earth. And what do you think generally of the technology of carbon capture and storage? It's one of the great white elephants in the debate that we're having around energy. It's held out as the panacea, as the solution to our continued reliance on use of coal. It's uh, certainly used as an argument that we can even have what they call abated coal production, that we can capture the carbon and then export vast volumes of coal overseas. And even some green groups have fallen into this trap, uh, whereas really, in reality, there's no one in the industry that I speak to that would be prepared to say carbon capture and storage will be able to be used in a viable time frame um, at a cost that's going to be commercially viable. And it seems like the Abbott government is actually moving away from carbon capture and storage. It's not in the emissions reduction fund as a viable form of emissions reduction. What do you think yeah. of that? Yeah, this is really surprising uh, because the Abbott government, as we know, is very rusted on to the notion of there being more coal and particularly coal exports. Uh, Mr Abbott is on the record as talking about coal as being a gift for humanity. We know that the Prime Minister is a climate denier or a climate sceptic. He doesn't support strong climate change policies. And if you speak to people in the coal sector, carbon capture and storage is their get-out-of-jail-free card. It's going to allow them to continue to pollute greenhouse gases everywhere because they'll be able to use this technology. So it's quite astonishing that a government that is so anti-action on climate change is actually reducing the amount of money that's going to this technology. But uh, it is heartening that even the Abbott government has seen the writing on the wall, carbon capture and storage isn't going to work in a viable time frame, and they're starting to wind back the amount of money that you and I as taxpayers are putting into this ridiculous technology. And um, what do you think of the... It's, I mean, in the government scheme of things, it's, it's not much, but what do you think of the six and a half... $100,000 of Australian Renewable Energy Agency money that's going to the project that involves using renewable energy for carbon capture and storage. We think that renewable technologies are proven and they're ready to go and they're commercially viable and new wind, for instance, and new solar is, is of a very similar price to new build coal or gas. So there's really no, no reason to be putting any money into carbon capture and storage. The interesting thing around renewables is how they can be used to, in the realm of energy storage. That's really where we should be putting our public money into research and development and renewables at present. We shouldn't be putting it into this white elephant technology such as carbon capture and storage.
You were talking about the price of starting up a new renewable energy power station compared to starting a new coal-fired power station. Um, when you were talking about that, did you were you envisioning that coal-fired power station to be um, CCS or not? No, just a, a, if you like a traditional, a, a modern generation, but a traditional form of coal uh, power where you're releasing all the uh, carbon into the atmosphere. Um, they're commensurate and often wind is cheaper on a kilowatt hour on a new build basis. Uh, but if you started to factor in carbon capture and storage, you really can't do the sums because we still don't know how expensive carbon capture and storage will be. Industry likes to point to the fact that there are some projects up and running and there's a lot of research underway and people at present are capturing carbon at point of combustion but the costs of doing that are really going to drive prices through the roof. The beauty of renewables is of course that the the energy source, wind or sun or waves, is free. So once you pay for the technology and it's in place, the cost of the input will continue to go uh, down because there is there's, there's no cost in, in finding that energy, whereas coal will become more expensive. So even if you were able to get the technology to work to capture the carbon at the point of combustion at the power station and then safely sequester it somewhere underground uh, for a, a very long period of time, just assuming the technological issues there can be resolved, um, the cost of the commercial viability of that really, really just leaves a, a, a lot to be considered. And I'm not hearing anyone in industry say to me with a straight face, they think they can do this in a time-bound way, consistent with what climate science tells us we need to do, and certainly not in terms of it being commercially viable. Okay, thank you very much. No worries. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Corey Green. Today on the show we heard from Professor Ralph Hayes from the Peter Cook Centre for CCS Research at the University of Melbourne. To find out more, go to petercook.unimelb.edu.au. We also heard from Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth who can be found at www.foe.org. And we heard from Gerard Drew from Beyond Zero Emissions. Their work, including their latest report on CCS, can be found at bze.org.au. If you missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the good folk at the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Coolin Nation. Our contact phone number is 03-9419-8377, and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.